0: Well, uh, greet you on this uh, Labor Day weekend, and we begin a, a new series that's already been announced to you uh, out of the letter of 1 John, or the book of 1 John, uh, and, uh, with the theme, No Doubt, Six Things We Can Know For Sure. That ought to be a comforting theme, and I think it's a very timely theme. That's what I've liked about these Bible Studies for Life lessons that you've seen to me ever since we started that in March of uh, 2020 that they've just always been right on target with where we are and what we need to hear as we go through these studies together and have uh, the lesson for that day introduced in the message. When we talk about needy assurances and there's no doubt, and, you know, six things that we can know for sure. Uh, we need that because we live in the midst of a world of, of so many uncertainties. You know, we, uh, weather, the climate change, and, and the economy and the issues with that, and the political landscape, and all that goes on in, in our country, uh, everything affects us. You know, we're missing this COVID-19 resurgence again. I think if I read correctly over the weekend, South Carolina leads the nation in the number of new cases of this new corona, uh, whatever you call it, the, the, the new delta that's out there. So, you know, there's a whole lot of uncertainty that we face. But fortunately, God is still in control. He's on his throne, and he's given us his word that gives us the assurance that he knows all these things, and he gives us the assurance that we can know for sure. So I think it's very timely that we look at the book of 1 John. And I encourage you just to read through it. Maybe every week this uh, during this series, read through these few chapters of 1 John. And you will find so many certainties that we are reminded of. In fact, the word know, look how many times you might find it in your translation. But the word know appears about 42 times in the book of 1 John. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole letter is written to us that we can live as believers in Jesus Christ and in a relationship with him. That we can know certain things that will give us confidence for living our life of faith in this world today. Now some of the things that we're reminded of in 1 John is that we obviously we can know God. We can know where we stand with God. We can know what God expects of us and we can even know God's will for our life. The Apostle John, I think the one who wrote the the Gospel of John and then who wrote Revelation, writes to us here in 1 John. Probably sometime between AD 85 and 95 to a group of believers probably in Western Asia, Minor. Those were troubling times for them, unsettled times for them. They needed to know some things of, of certainty that would give them security and strength and confidence as they lived their life. And so I want to point out a few other things that you might want to write down and look for as you read through the letter of 1 John. But here's some specific things, five for sure, that you can know and claim in this letter. John tells us in 1 John 1, 4, that this letter will bring joy. He says we write this to make our joy complete. This letter will bring you joy as you read it because of the assurance that it brings to you. 1 John 2.12, this letter was written to cl- clarify, clearly, assure the forgiveness of sin. It says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's great to know it, an assurance of forgiveness. That's what we're going to look at today in the passage of scripture out of First John 2, 1 John through 2 Then in 1 John 2.26, we find that John says he's writing to us to protect us from false teaching. He says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. That's a strange thing, isn't it? But sometimes we have to know that truth because there's always untruth out there that's trying to lead us astray. I love this one, 1 John 5, 13. This letter was written to assure us as believers of eternal life. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, that's a great assurance, isn't it? I write these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. You ever been asked the question, are you sure that you're saved? You know where you'll go to spend eternity when you die and leave this world? And and most people answer that by saying, well, I think so. You know, you need to have a better answer than that as a believer in Jesus Christ. You need to be able to say, I know so. And and 1 John was written to tell you, you can know that. Think about that again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a great comforting thing to know in the midst of all the uncertainties that we face every day in this world. And then 1 John 5, 14. This is another great reminder that we have the assurance that When we pray in his name that God hears our prayer. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, John says. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now those are are great. Those are five things I picked out of 1 John just going through them randomly. And it's a great assurance and comfort to us. Today we're going to look at one that we all need to know. The great uh, theme of being forgiven and the choir's anthem on that, forgiven. We're cleansed, and we have a new life from within when we know that we're forgiven. Some of you today might be in doubt of knowing whether you are truly forgiven by God. You don't know where you stand in relationship to God. I'm hoping that when you leave here today, you will have the full assurance of knowing that you are forgiven because of God's grace given freely to you through Jesus Christ. So look with me in your Bibles or on the screen, on your Bible app, on your phone, wherever you choose to have your word of God. But we're going to look at a portion of what you'll be studying in your life group. We're just going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and talk about then the assurance of forgiveness. John says, my dear children, I write this to you, and catch this phrase, so that you will not sin. Now, some of you might get turned off right there. That's impossible in my life, right? That's what's, am- that, that's what's going through your mind right now. Listen to it again. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But, now we're taught always that, that conjunction but negates everything that's before it, right? In English language, he says, but if anybody does sin, that's another interesting phrase. If anybody does sin, Sin. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, those phrases ought to be enough to get our interest up. Well, how did you think about that phrase when John says, I write this to you, So you will not sin. Some of you might have turned a deaf ear to that and said, that doesn't apply to me. I'm constantly living in sin. Some of you might have said, I'm above that. I'm above sin. I don't have to worry about that today. We'll talk about that presumptuous attitude a little bit later on. And some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm going to get the assurance from John that I can walk out of here and live my life and never sin again. Don't be mistaken in thinking that, okay? So what is John saying to us? Is he telling us that we can reach the place in our spiritual journey in life in this world with all the temptation that we face, that we can live a sinless life? Or does it just simply mean that we can't know that we are forgiven of our sins, both past and current and present, yet to come? So here's what we need to understand how John is writing this letter. John is talking about, first of all, our course in life. Our course in life. That is the direction of our life. Notice how he addresses that. My dear children, to whom is he writing Then He's writing to a group of believers, my dear children. John's a believer. He's one of the apostles. He's writing to a group of believers, and he's saying to them, my dear children. Some other translations say little children, little children. So, we need to understand clearly then what John is teaching us about this concept about forgiveness and the assurance of being forgiven, and what he means in this phrase so that if anyone sins, or I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. He is not teaching a presumption about grace and forgiveness. He is not teaching a presumption about grace and forgiveness. We'll also look today at one of the great scriptures in 1 John 1, verse 9, that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is something that we can claim every day in our life. That's that, that's that amazing grace of God that he's made available to us in our sinful life. Hebrews 6, 18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. He promises that he will forgive you, and he tells you how he will do that, and it's through his grace that's found in Jesus Christ. So God is making it plain for us today. We can have the assurance today That we can be forgiven of every sin we've ever committed and every sin that we will commit as our life continues on in this world. God's mercy and grace is abundant so that he will cover all of our sins. Or as Ervin Lutzer, a former pastor at Moody Church in Chicago said, there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. That's a great reminder and a great assurance. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. So that's why John says then he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. We're reminded once again that when Jesus died on the cross, it was enough. His last words it was finished. Means that what he had come to do was to accomplish salvation for us, was finished on the cross. His finished work on the cross guarantees us that we can be forgiven and that we can know that we are forgiven. Jesus died on the cross, and that's enough for the forgiveness of our sins. There's enough to pay for our salvation and our full forgiveness, and you don't have to earn it. There's no copay option. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. Now, a lot of people go through life with the attitude whether they actually voice this question or not with saying, well, how much sin can I commit and still go to heaven? You ever wonder about that? How much sin can I commit and still go to heaven? You know, that's something I was wondering, what's the bottom line in this? Or what's the least that I have to do, okay? What is the least that I have to do to go to heaven? And John is saying, you're missing the whole point about your course in life. It's not about saying, well, how much can I sin and still eke in to heaven? That's not what he's saying. So we need to be careful about that because that is that presumption about God's grace. And the apostle Paul dealt with that in his life, in his ministry, in his writings. And there was an issue evidently in the church at Rome that he had to write to the Romans and say in chapter 6. And he say, states it this way with rhetorical questions and then he answers them What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, so that grace may increase? See, some people have that notion to say, okay, if grace is there to cover my sins, then the more I sin, the more grace I get from God. I hope you don't think that, but that's what Paul said. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, so that grace may increase? And then he answers that: by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's reminding us that in Christ we are forgiven but we have died to sin. That should be our course or our nature in life as we walk through this world. One of the great theologians uh, in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, book entitled The Cost of Discipleship calls that kind of attitude cheap grace. And he says that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then he defines what costly grace is. He says costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock, that grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Not too long after Bonhoeffer wrote those magnificent words in that book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, he was executed in a German prisoner of war camp. But you look at those words that he talks about, cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is where we presume upon the grace and the goodness of God. Costly grace is when the course of our life is being steered away from sin and the propensity in our life to sin because we are growing closer and closer every day to the Lord Jesus Christ in our walk through no matter what all the uncertainties are in the world in which we live. You see, if you take that carefree attitude about sin in your life, then you show that you have no real concern for, no understanding about what grace actually cost God and what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died so that we could sin without consequence. Now, that doesn't mean that's our attitude in life. But it means that we find forgiveness in him. That's where the greatest display of God's love will ever be found, and his grace. And that's on the cross when Jesus died. See, Jesus died so we could be free from the hold of sin on our lives. And when we willfully continue to live with disregard for God's standards, we show that we don't appreciate or understand what Jesus did for us. And that makes grace cheap. And there's nothing cheap about grace. It's free to us, but it wasn't cheap to God, right? What happens is we make, uh, we make a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we dishonor the gospel. So what the Apostle John is doing in his writing is he's encouraging the course of our life away from sin and towards a deeper love for the Son of God, our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ and when we value forgiveness and God's grace correctly, then we have a burning desire to show our love for Christ through obedience. I think all of us would agree that there are basically three motives for obedience and that's fear, duty, and love. Those are the basic three motives for obedience Fear, duty, and love. I don't know uh, in today's culture and society whether parents do this kind of thing or not for disciplining the children. Uh, but w- when I was a child growing up, believe it or not, sometimes I got in trouble at home. <laughs> that that you know I, I would disappoint my mother or my grandmother. And the result of that was, was, you know, one of those paddles that had the ball attached with a, with elastic on. What did I think called a flyback thing? Where you supposed to paddle that thing and be able to? You know, well, when mine broke, they put it in a drawer, and that was how they displayed God's grace in my life was through that paddle. You know, when our kids were coming along, we had a paddle made that had their name on. Somebody made that for us, and they put their name on there. And so we had one of those things. I don't know what you do today. But, you know, that's one of the things that would cause obedience, and that's fear. You know, fear of being punished. And then there's duty. That, that's, my, my, that's my bound obligation is duty. I have to obey because the duty. And if you do that, then you miss the whole concept about grace It's because you do it out of love. And that's the third motive is love. So, see, obeying because we have to is fear. Obeying because I need to do it. Well, it's it's only a duty, and you miss out on the joy of obeying God. And then the third one is obeying because I want to. That's because of love. I love that. So John is not teaching a presumption about grace and forgiveness. Now, the second thing relates to that phrase that ought to have got everybody's attention. He is not teaching a mandate about sinless perfection. He is not teaching a mandate about sinless perfection. He is not teaching that Christians will ever reach the place in life in this world where we will never sin. You say, okay, well, let's go back. And what did John say? He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Did I just contradict what the Bible says? Now, let me explain. And hopefully we'll understand that. Because then he goes on to say, but. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He is not teaching that believers will reach this place in life in this world where we never sin. So what is he saying? He is encouraging us in the course of our life because of the grace of God and our love for God because of his grace for us that we do not want to sin, You never ask that question when you have that attitude that says, okay, well, how much can I sin and still go to heaven? You don't ask that question because you're choosing to obey out of love. That's well, nice to think we could ever reach sinless perfection, but the experience in your life and mine both tell us that that's impossible, right? We probably commit a few sins by the time we get out of bed every morning. Either a bad attitude or we say something to our spouse or children or whatever that's not good and right and you know then, then that puts us in a bad mood and we go down the road and we commit road rage and then we get to the office or school or wherever, and we're not in the best of spirits and so you know there we have it we've sinned. And then to add to that when we read the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 48 we're really put to shame because he says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect now those two things that do not give us assurance be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and when he says then I'm writing this to you in First John so that you will not sin that can bring discouragement and despair if we get to that point of trying to live that perfect life now with the advent of football season this is a wonderful weekend I think about six nights starting Wednesday night through Monday night college football great, great time to watch football Maybe we can make that analogy. Coaches all over America are are telling their team that they will need to play a perfect game or an error-free game if they're going to be successful. But the coach knows that the reality is that they will not do that. A lineman's going to miss his block. A quarterback's going to make the wrong read on the defensive formation and therefore call the wrong play. A wide receiver's going to be wide open and drop a touchdown pass. But what the coach is doing is when he knows those mistakes are inevitable, he's setting a goal for the team to try to eliminate mistakes. That's why they practice all the time. So what John is saying to us is he is setting a standard for our Christian life here and now, but which will not be completed until we reach eternity in heaven. Now look again at that phrase in 1 John verse 1 of chapter 2. He covers the reality of sin that is inevitable by saying if anybody does sin. The Greek scholars tell us that the construction of that phrase is what is known as a third class condition. Which literally translates that phrase this way. If anybody does sin and it will happen. That's what John is saying. So in your Bible, you might want to mark that and add that to the word where it says, If anyone does sin, you might want to add, and it will happen because it's true in your life and mine. The reality is, see, that truth dispels this whole n- nature of sinless perfection. It's not if. We sin, but when we sin. And see, then that keeps us from getting frustrated or discouraged. And that, in turn, is an assurance for our life as we walk in this sinful world. And John gives us two reasons for assurance and celebrating that. He tells us that Jesus Christ is our advocate, or the one called beside us, who makes intercession to the Father, And he tells us that Jesus died on the cross to pay the sacrificial requirements for for the sins of every person in the world. So that means you and me included. So the second thing we observe then is that John is talking about our counsel for life. Our counsel for life. If anybody does sin, put in that phrase, and it will happen... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, in some translations, Jesus is referred to as the advocate. In other translations, like NIV, he is the one who speaks to the Father in our defense. It is actually the Greek word for paraclete, which means one who is called to walk alongside of us. Same word used for the Holy Spirit. That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit, to be our parapleg, to walk with us in life and all that we experience. So you get the picture? This is the picture that John is trying to paint. When you need a defense attorney, you have one who is always standing beside you, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time that your sin is charged against you, Jesus turns to the Father and says, Remember, Father, I died for him. Remember, I died for her. They trusted in me. Their sin is forgiven. And we have an advocate. We have that attorney right there with us. And so why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, because we all sin, right? It's not a matter of if, but when. And the second reason is because we have an accuser who has reason." To accuse us because we sin. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan accuses us night and day before God. One thing you can say about Satan is he's always on the job. You don't have to look for him. He will find you. He's always on the job. And what does it mean when it says he accuses us night and day? That's when he nudges you and he says, you sin today big time, buddy. You sin today big time and you're in trouble before God, you are not worthy of God's grace. You're not worthy of the forgiveness that God offers to you. In fact, you aren't forgiven. You ever heard God say, I ever heard Satan say those things to you? You ever heard Satan accusing you in your life and it just washes you with a sense of defeat and guilt? Yeah, I think we've all done that. You might not have known it was Satan, but he is the accuser who is always on the job. Well, here's the good news for today and the assurance that we claim. Jesus is relentless in his defense of us, and he is undefeated in his defense. I looked up on the internet about the most successful lawyer getting clients off, and I found that Sir Lionel Lucku, senior partner of Lucku and Lucku of Georgetown, Guyana, Succeeded in getting 245 successive murder charge acquittals between 1940 and 1985. If you're ever accused of murder, you want to go to Guyana and get him to represent you. That's pretty good. 245 consecutive murder charges acquittal. Well, as amazing as that is, Jesus has a better record. Everybody who's ever come to him in sin and asked for forgiveness has been forgiven. And it doesn't matter what Satan does or says to you, trying to accuse you and discourage you in your sin. Jesus is there constantly to remind the father, I died for him, I died for her, his sins paid for, her sin is paid for. And you have the assurance of forgiveness. You don't make it cheap grace. You don't presume upon God's grace and sin so that more grace will abound. Paul said, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Bonhoeffer said, no, 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 that's cheap grace. That's not the way grace works. It's costly grace. So what does it mean? It means then that we have a relentless defender in Jesus Christ who guarantees, who assures our forgiveness, and we live with confidence in the fact that when we sin, we don't want to. We've, we, we're steering our course in life, hopefully, away from sin and closer and closer to Jesus so that we don't sin. But when we do sin, Jesus is there as our Advocate. And He died for the sins of the world. And your sins can be forgiven too. So then that leads us to the third thing then. Our considerations for life. What does that mean for us today? If we come here today with doubts, confusion, despair about all the uncertainties of life, and then we've got to deal with the issue of sin, we know that's a reality. So what are the considerations for life? Number one, it's a warning about presumption not to abuse grace. See, none of us can claim to have no sin. All of us must confess our sin and claim God's forgiveness. That is in 1 John 1, 9. And that promise is so abundant. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. All that's so so powerful and so meaningful for us. We do not presume upon God's grace, but he makes it available to us constantly. So that when we sin, we confess it and we acknowledge that before God, and he forgives us of that sin through Jesus Christ. Then the second thing to consider today is this is an invitation to all people. Yeah, John wrote this letter to his dear children, to fellow believers who were dealing with sin and so many uncertainties in life. If they had all kinds of uncertainties back then, think about all the uncertainties that face us today. But the invitation to all says that the good news of the gospel is forgiveness for believers who sin as well as for sinners who are not yet believers. See, if possible, that you here in this place of worship today that you maybe not yet have claimed the grace of God through Jesus Christ and become a Christian, a follower of Christ. You've not repented of your sin, confessed Christ as your Savior. Then that's what this invitation is. Maybe you're listening to our broadcast and you have never confessed your sin, repented from that sin, and trusted Christ to be your Savior and the Lord of your life, the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. Well, this is an invitation to you. The Bible always gives you these invitations. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's through Jesus Christ because on the cross he paid the penalty for our sin. He was the propitiation or the sacrificial offering for our sins. Acts 4.12 tells us salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Yes, John writes those words to his dear children other believers that they can constantly call upon that amazing grace of God and receive forgiveness. But it's also to anyone as well who is in need of crying out in sin that has been unconfessed for salvation and claiming salvation through the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ in the finished work on the cross of Calvary. So today, we come and discover in First John the first thing he wants us to know, and that is the assurance of forgiveness through Jesus Christ as our Savior, our advocate, our atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And because Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins, as we confess those sins and ask for God's grace, we can be forgiven of our sins. And we can live in the very presence of an unrelenting advocate, an atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and experience forgiveness every day until we reach sinless perfection in the glories of heaven. I want you to leave here today with the assurance of forgiveness. you're a believer, then you need to make sure that in right relationship with God, you're trying your best to stay away from sin so that you will not sin. If you haven't yet acknowledged Christ as your Savior and accepted him through the grace that God offers to you, then today is a great day to make that decision, whether you're here personally or whether you're listening to the broadcast. If you just pray and open up your heart, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life, be the forgiver of my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn from it. I want to live for you. I experience of grace. I ask you to come into my life and be the Lord of my life. That's a simple thing to do, but it's the most profound and life-changing experience you will ever have. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the words today of Lord Apostle John as he writes to us about the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. And may each of us today be able to claim with great confidence and assurance and, 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 and comfort to our hearts and to our souls that your grace is still abundant. And that it is certainly free for us as we come to you and confess and acknowledge our sin that we can be forgiven. Father, if there's anyone here who needs to come to faith in Christ, may they do that today. Anyone here who needs to make any other public decision to join with us by promise of letter, by statement, that he or she will come. If there's anyone who needs to make the decision today to walk in steadfast love and obedience to Jesus Christ because of love, then I pray that they'll make that decision. Father, thank you for the assurance we have of the forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. Amen.